On October 13, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a conference titled Race and Justice in the Age of Obama. This podcast is a recording of the panel titled Obama's Legacy, Opportunity and Opportunities Missed. Panelists included Mary Frances Berry, Geraldine R. Segal, Professor of American Social Thought, History, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, Joshua Dubois, Founder, Values Partnerships, and former head of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, Sir Michael Singleton, Republican political consultant, writer, and political analyst, and Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Assistant Professor, Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Moderating this panel was Callie Crossley, host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley at WGBH. Opening the conference with welcome remarks were Arkan Fung, Academic Dean at Harvard Kennedy School and Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship, and David T. Elwood, Scott M. Black, Professor of Political Economy and Director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy. conference is part of an ongoing series on race and American politics that is chaired by Leah Wright Rigur and Khalil Gibran Mohammed. And it's a whole series of events uh, that is spanning the year and beyond. And so uh, let's give them a big hand for bringing us all together. There was so much excitement about this event that many, many organizations within the Kennedy School and beyond wanted to co-sponsor it, not least of which is the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Shorenstein Center for Press, Politics, and Media, the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy, the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, as well as uh, several student groups, including the Black Student Union, the Black Policy Conference, and the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy. Today's conversations come at an, enorm an enormously important moment in our long and troubled evolution of the politics of race and policy in the United States. As the second term of the Obama administration comes to a close in these next few months, it is important to take stock of where we have come in order that we may be able to move powerfully forward more effectively into the future. As I was listening to the forum discussion last night, and it was a great discussion, I was thinking about this question of legacy and different parts of the legacy, and I thought I'd share some reflections on that. And I'm, I'm talking here not just about the president's legacy, but the legacy of these last eight years. And I'm, I was thinking that it's helpful to divide up our thinking in terms of that in three different categories. And so I'm thinking about kind of culture and narrative as one piece of it, public policy as a second piece, and politics as a third piece. And I hope that some of these reflections are helpful to you in organizing your own thinking and pushing back a little bit. Um, last night, there was a lot of talk about the culture and public narrative piece. And I think that is enormously important. I mean, we have just experienced what uh, political theorists call an enormous gain in descriptive representation. We've had our first black president, and that is a reality that would have been unimaginable, just incredulous just a few years ago. And that fact, that bare fact all by itself should not be underestimated. 
Um, as people talked about last night, one of the lasting accomplishments, I think, of this administration and the public culture it has created is raising the awareness of the reality of life for minorities, African-American communities, but many others in America for many others who may not understand that reality, not least in the area of criminal justice and policing, but many others besides. I don't think it's a coincidence that many of the public discussions and books that have come out that raise, that have received a lot of public attention, I'm thinking here of Brian Stevenson and Tom going well for the bottom quintile and the bottom two quintiles. That's kind of at least my read on the economic policy part of it. And all of these things are worth reflecting on. The category by profession that I'm most interested in is the, um, the political category. And uh, Khalil last night offered a prompt for us. The Sarah Palin version of that prompt is, well, what do we think of the hopey changey thing now, eight years later? And Eight years ago, I was enormously optimistic about the Hopi Changey thing because the rhetoric and stance of the campaign was intensely political. It was about an us, where I understood the us to be about um, political movements and social movements that would be important to advance the president's agenda. Key to that. Uh, my read of uh, the last eight years is that um, the strategies, the legislative strategies for these important public policy initiatives, and I was remiss not to mention health care. Of course, uh, health care is high up in the accomplishments of the last eight years for the Obama administration. The predominant strategies have not been strategies that mobilize outside groups to put pressure on, um, on the legislative and policy-making process. It's been much more reliant on uh, a pretty standard kind of policy-making process with legislative politics inside Congress. And I think that that, that kind of strategy during the administration has some limitations. Um, during the new, uh, before the New Deal, there's a story, I don't know whether it's true or not, that President Roosevelt, then President Roosevelt, met with a union leader who was explaining all of the benefits of a more robust kind of set of policies that were New Dealish, what would become the New Deal. And Roosevelt was reported to say, well, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm very sympathetic to you, but now go make me do it. And what he meant was the offices of the presidency are more limited than you might think. And if you want a very important and fundamental social policy change to happen, somebody has to make the politicians do it. It has to have mass-based political support and mobilization in order to make that happen because social policies are difficult to change, right? And so um, I think that one uh, kind of lacuna in the Obama legacy is the relative absence or silence of public policies that are set in place to strengthen the power of ordinary people to get together and think about politics and act collectively. I'm thinking here of uh, the failure of the Employee Free Choice Act, which would have uh, really enabled uh, collective action on the power of labor unions. I'm thinking here of the absence of anything like a community action project, uh, a community action in the war on poverty, a major point of which was to strengthen the capacity of communities to act collectively to improve their own circumstances. There's, uh, and there hasn't been 
very much like uh, even volunteer programs like VISTA in the War on Poverty that would have created public resources to basically pay people to help out communities act collectively and advance their interests, right? So there's a whole range of things, uh, of public policies that could have been set in place to strengthen the collective action capability of communities to act on issues like um, racial injustice and economic opportunity that are not in place. And so you have, uh, on the promising side, uh, uh, for people who are on the social justice kind of economic equality side of the agenda, social movements like Black Lives Matter and Occupy, uh, but they're kind of out there without help, as it were, from the policymakers in kind of shoring up their organizations. And so I think that lacuna will play out. And indeed, on the politics side of things, um, I think the picture and this isn't the president's fault at all, has gotten worse, not better, because at the same time that you lack foundations to enable people to organize and act collectively, what you have is on the other side of the ledger is an opening up of the floodgates of money and politics, right? And um, Hillary Clinton has been the main beneficiary of, of that in this election cycle. Uh, at the presidential level, it's playing out in states and localities all over the place. But that's, that's kind of the, the opposite of popular collective action. That's uh, uh, money pursuing its political interests, right? Okay, so um, that's a little bit of reflection about the cultural and public narrative piece, the public policy piece, and the, uh, and the politics piece of the legacies, and you guys will have much more to say about different pieces of uh, where we are in, the, in dealing, grappling with the challenges of, of race and justice in the age of Obama. And I look forward to those discussions later on today. Um, I thank everyone for deciding to spend last night and the day here. One of the things that we're really proud of at the Harvard Kennedy School is the ability to bring people together, and it's a great opportunity, I think, for you for several reasons. One is um, you all, uh, you know, I, I sit around and, and think about these things all day. That's a real luxury and a privilege for me. You guys have real jobs and you're out there doing stuff. Today is an opportunity for you to step back from your day-to-day -day, uh, immediate challenge, organizational or policy or political challenge of the day to reflect on the bigger picture and please take advantage to that, of that. Um, a second feature of this uh, convening that makes it a great opportunity is the diversity of, of folks here, right? And so people come from many different political views, which itself on this topic is quite an achievement. And um, Leah and, and Khalil uh, should be thanked for that. Uh, and so uh, there's an opportunity to learn things, right? And then finally, there are, uh, you'll have access to faculty members, other people at the Kennedy School who have deep, deep expertise in areas like education, in the history of race and politics, in political parties, in, in other kinds of things. So take advantage of that expertise. My belief is that a day like this always goes better when you have some intentionality about it. And so what is your intention? What would make this a good day for you? by the end of the day, and you know, some thoughts are, one is, it might be a good day if you learned something, that is, if you gained an insight or embraced an idea that was new to you that you didn't have before you came here last night, that might be good. 
Uh, second positive outcome would be if you met someone that you didn't know before that you might continue this conversation afterwards or maybe work on some project with. That would be a good outcome. And a third would be if you did something out of today's conversations, if it gave you an idea or inspiration to how to drive, for how to drive your own work forward after you leave this very brief day and an evening at the Kennedy School. So th those are some suggestions about what your intention might be for the rest of the day, and I'm sure that you have um, other intentions, but you should be intentional about it because the day will go quickly, of course. Um, now, what I would like to do now is uh, welcome and introduce David Elwood, who is the Scott Black Professor of Social Policy. He is uh, one of the foremost thinkers of, about social policy and how to uh, address and, and fight the, the problems of poverty and inequality in our society. He uh, was the dean of the Kennedy School for the last 11 years before last year. It was a great period of the Kennedy School. And now, after doing that, he is the director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy. He's worked on a number of important initiatives at the Wiener Center and on social policy uh, more broadly. Uh, before he did that, he was assistant secretary of planning and evaluation at HHS under the Clinton administration. And currently, he's continuing those interests many years later, trying to develop the next generation of faculty working on poverty and inequality issues at the Wiener Center and working on a very important national initiative uh, to get, bring together the best minds and the best hands in the field to think about how to expand economic opportunity in the coming decades in the United States. Please welcome David Elwood. Yeah. Well, that was really quite impressive, Archon, and I'm, not, I'm here just to welcome you. I'm not going to pretend that I have more expertise than the panels or anything else here. But I just want to say a couple of things quickly. First of all, I really think this is an unbelievably important issue. As someone, uh, I think we all kind of have a, a shared dream of hope, which is that all of our children, regardless of where they begin, have a genuine opportunity, and indeed quite likely, that they can achieve a sense of economic security, but also a sense of dignity and control over their own lives, and a real sense of connection to community and the like. That's kind of what we mean by mobility. We want people to have that opportunity. Um, and there are many, that's a long journey. There are a lot of different uh, things and policies involved, and, and many people at the school, and of course many people far beyond, are working very hard to think about those kinds of questions. But there are very, very few things, events even. That's, you know, the, the March to Mobility is a, a journey. But there are very few events that have so much power, in fact, so much negative power, than getting engaged in the criminal justice system. Uh, very few things can affect all three of those things, your chance to really have an adequate living, your chance to feel like you have control over your life, and a, a sense of being connected to the community. Uh, and it's, it's, it, and therefore, the kind of work on justice that's going on here is absolutely vital. By the way, very few things are as important by, as violence as well, as experiencing violence and so forth. And these things are obviously connected in complicated and important ways. So I think the work that goes on here uh, is really vital, but it's, it's particularly vital right now because, honestly, uh, I feel like we're kind of on a knife edge. 
there are reasons to be hopeful, and Archon talked about some of that, and some of that was last night and so forth. Let's see what's happened during this period. Uh, there's a, there's a, a much larger recognition and so forth about what uh, justice does and doesn't mean. But there's also a, good, a lot of good reasons to be really, really worried that uh, we'll quickly go back to a world where we're got to get even tougher. We've got to um, figure out ways to lock more people up or whatever else, which is devastating to communities and obviously not even good for, for safety in the long run. So um, I, and frankly, it's really easy, a lot easier to tell the bad story than the good story. Uh, obviously, this election is of that sort, but it's much more that there's these, these underlying flows and tensions in the society that are hugely challenging. So it's so very, very terrific and wonderful and important that this work is going on. And I particularly want to p uh, pay uh, thanks to uh, all the various groups that have helped uh, support this, particularly the Ash Center, but especially uh, to Leah Wright Raghur and, and Kalou Mohammed. <laughs> these are. These are two people that have recently arrived at the Kennedy School, uh, and even I, I even have some small role in helping that happen. Uh, and I couldn't be more thrilled and proud because it is such an important time, and they are doing such important work. Uh, so my last duty up here is it's twofold. Uh, first. I wanted to mention that at the end of this conference, there's another very exciting thing happening today at 4 p.m. on Star Auditorium. It's on, I think, your agendas. But it's a thing about 10 big ideas uh, around the issues of inequality uh, and wealth and so forth more broadly. And these are going to be 10 faculty members drawn from across the university. Think of them as mini TED Talks about 10 big ideas that might really matter. And I think it's going to be terrific. So I really would encourage you to come Star Auditorium. Uh, if you don't know where that is, just ask. You can find your way. Lastly, I do now want to just uh, ask uh, Leah to come up to the podium. And just she's been introduced last night, and you've seen her and so forth, so I won't go on long other than to simply say uh, this is a remarkable person uh, engaged in looking hard at the issues of race and politics and their intersection. And frankly, uh, she's, uh, she's a house of fire. Uh, it's just amazing to see, and it's a great challenge. And all I suggest is follow her, listen to her, and uh, let's just get in line. So with that, let me turn it over to Leah Wright Regard. Okay, so first of all, thank you all for being here early in the morning. Um, I'm not a morning person, so any, anyone who is, is up, um, kudos to you. Um, the first thing that I'd, I'd like to do is actually call all of the panelists for our first panelists uh, up to the stage. Um, and as they get settled, um, I'd just like to go over a few housekeeping rules. Um, the first is that we do have a hashtag for this conference, um, and it is hashtag RaceJusticeHKS. That's R-A-C-E-J-U-S-T-I-C-E-H-K-S. So you can follow along, you can tweet. We really actually encourage this, um, and we would love to see public engagement. The second is that we are audio and video recording. Um, C-SPAN is actually recording and will air footage at a later date and time. And we ask that because of that, that all remarks and questions during the Q&A be spoken clearly into a microphone. And please, please, please try and end your questions with a question mark. So is now my approach, is everyone up on the stage? Well, it is now my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's opening panel. Callie Crossley is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, airing Sundays from 6 to 7 p.m. on WGBH. Her weekly commentaries also air Mondays during WGBH's Morning Edition. Uh, she is a frequent 
frequent commentator um, on local and national television and radio programs. She's been quoted in the New York Times, Politico, and the Washington Post. She's appeared on NECN's Broadside, CNN's Reliable Sources on the Media, PBS NewsHour, and PRI's The Takeaway. She appears weekly on WGBH-TV's Beat the Press, examining local and national media coverage, and frequently hosts Basic Black, which focuses on current events concerning communities of color. She has also been the recipient of two Harvard fellowships from the Neiman Foundation for Journalism and for the Institute of Politics at the John F. Kennedy School of Government, right here. Uh, Crossley was also a producer for Blackside Incorporated's Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, which earned her an Oscar nomination, a National Emmy, and the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Award. So with that, I am going to turn it over to our moderator, Callie Crossley, to introduce our panelists. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. We're going to, I'm going to start by introducing the panelists here just before we begin to let you know. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then there will be time for each of you to ask your question so you can uh, be prepared to do that after we start. Stop speaking here. Every single one of these panelists has a robust bio. You will not hear it now. I'm going to give you the one sentence that's on this page. So beginning with Professor Barry at the end. Mary Frances Barry is the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought, History, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Joshua Dubois is the founder of Values Partnerships and the former head of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Kianga Yamada Taylor is assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. And Sher Michael Singleton is a Republican political consultant, writer, and political analyst. So I note that our panel title is Opportunity and Opportunities Missed. So we're going to start on the opportunity end, um, which is the uplifting uh, side of the equation. And I want to begin with... Uh, someone who has much gravitas in the field of civil rights. That's Professor Barry. Um, you've worked with several presidents. So when we talk about uh, looking at race and justice in the age of Obama, you can bring a context to it that I think few others can. And I want to ask you, what is the opportunity that you see from a policy perspective that President Obama has been able to make happen? Well, I think that uh, I know too much. <laughs> and uh, some days I think that I should stop talking to anybody about anything <laughs> because I'm a cynic. Uh, and uh, I'm a cynic because I've served in some capacity in every administration since Nixon, Republican and Democrat. Um, and so uh, when I look at Obama when he was running for office and I was excited about it, I looked at him in the context of all those other administrations <laughs> that I knew about and never believed in hope and change to begin with because I knew too much. Uh, and I also teach policy history, mm -hmm. so I just know too much. But what uh, Obama, um, not to be too cynical because I don't like to discourage people, but the opportunity he had was to show that what Joe Biden said to him was about him was correct, that he was clean and articulate and would always be that way 
uh, that he, as a black man coming to be president, wouldn't be frightening to anybody, and that he had all the right credentials and been all the right places and punched all the right tickets, and has an engaging personality and is really smart, and no one had to be embarrassed by what he did in his day-to-day, -day, the way he behaved with his wife and his children and all and his mother-in-law and all the things that he did that he would engage in perfectly model personal behavior, which he did do. Uh, you also knew from the speech he gave at the, uh, at the convention mm -hmm. that he was a wonderful orator. And I happen to have written a book about it called Power in Words with Josh Gottheimer about all the speeches that he made and the backgrounds of all of them. Um, so you knew those things. You knew he was incredibly lucky because the senator that he ran with collapsed, uh, ran against, collapsed in the Illinois race, which gave him a leg up. And he was incredibly lucky because he was from Chicago and the Iowans look at the Chicago TV and everybody knew him. And people came from Chicago in that first primary which, uh, caucus, which he won. And when I told Bill Clinton that Hillary was going to lose, after he won that one, and that she should just stop running, and Bill got mad at me. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they uh, and said, why? And I said, she's not going to win. He just won Iowa, if he can win Iowa. So uh, Obama had the opportunity to show, whenever you're black and you're the first person to do something, and I've been in that position a lot of times myself, people always say, are you going to mess up so much that nobody can ever do it again? <laughs> I don't think anyone can say he messed up so much that nobody <laughs> black can do it again. Capitalism is intact, okay? Mm -hmm. Racial inequality has been touched, but it's intact. Mm -hmm. The people who got them that got still get, mm -hmm. and are getting more. Uh, and not only that, that article the other week about people who are educated, black folk who have college degrees. <laughs> And who come to places like this, when they go out in the job market, they don't get the same kind of opportunity to move up uh, as other people do. Uh, so capitalism is safe. Uh, inequality, we've got protests and all that, but we haven't had a widespread rebellion. And the poor whites, who mostly been ignored, the deplorables, I guess they're called, uh -huh. uh, are still out there. <laughs> Uh, and life will move on. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, the opportunity he had was show a black man with the right credentials, the right kind of black man could do the job. And he's done the job and done the best he could with what he had, as Thurgood would say. Is there a specific <laughs> policy that, that he was able to take all of that that you've just said and, and make that work in a policy that you think really exhibited the, his use of his opportunity? I think that Obama did not use his policies and his, his uh, opportunity in the first term as effectively as I would li have liked to see it. I was present at the creation of the Affordable Care Act, and I know that lots of people, advocates, went in to try to ask them to put a public option in the Affordable Care Act. And the Democrats had control of Congress then. They could have done it. But the other thing, which I think is a more grievous failure, is that they left a hole wide enough for a truck to drive through in the act so that the court could find that Medicaid didn't have to be expanded. And millions of poor people who live in the poorest states in this country, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, a lot of poor black folks, people who are his, you know, his constituents, the cities and all that, all across the country, aren't covered because they 
were trying to hide what was in the bill, this is true, I'm not making it up, from the Republicans, and they didn't let the staffers who have the expertise read the bill, and as Nancy said, I mean, Congresswoman Pelosi said, uh, lots of people, they didn't know what was in it but they got it passed, and they had the majority then. You can't mm -hmm. blame that on the Republicans. They had a majority. The other thing I blame, say he should have done better, I would have hoped, in my opinion, uh, is that the race to the top, using that discretionary money for that untested, untried, unevaluated program, when that money could have been spent on in-school programs for kids, who are out on the street now stealing and robbing and shooting each other, uh, and for them to have in-school and training and job programs while they're in school, like they did at one time in the 60s and 70s, and after-school programs for them, and more vocational programs for them to get them off the street, which are tried and true programs. They're not just pie in the sky and let's go up on the wall and check it out. They're tried and true. So I think that he could have done better on that. The other thing is... I I'm going to stop you there because you're going into my opportunities missed and I'm trying <laughs> to get some oh, uplift I'm sorry, before, we, <laughs> before we can... I'm and sure, Michael, I approach you on this question with some trepidation because you began uh, when President Obama came in by saying, you know, that he was not on your plan. But I'm going to ask you to dig deep and find the opportunity um, that he was able to make happen in terms of policy. Well, I mean, I, I think, if I can, I think the president has done so far a, a reasonably decent job. Um, I think in particular, if you look around the country at a lot of African-American youth, uh, even Hispanic youth, and maybe even poor whites uh, who share the same communities as those two minority groups, uh, he's given a lot of hope, a lot of inspiration. And I think for a lot of minorities uh, who perhaps have believed, of course, you can accomplish whatever you put your mind to in America, uh, that wasn't quite fully realized until you did see a minority become the first president, the most powerfulest individual in the world. That is something that I don't think uh, any number of case studies, you can't, you can't quantify what something like that can do for a community of people. And if you look at places like Chicago, you look at places like Baltimore, uh, New Orleans, other cities, and my grandmother happens to be an educator in New Orleans, and I visit often and I talk to a lot of the kids there, and they live in environments that I can never imagine. And when I ask them, what do you think about your future? How do you see yourself? What do you want to do once you're done with high school, you go on to college, etc.? And more often than not, they say, I can do anything now. And when you ask why, they'll say, well, look at President Obama, look at Michelle Obama. And I constantly reflect on what that means. And, and it's, it's puzzling. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to figure out what his presidency has meant to so many uh, black and brown people. And, and again, I think that's, that's something that y you can't quantify. Maybe you can theorize it a bit. Uh, but, but for me, that is an opportunity. It's not a policy. It's beyond policy. It's, it's something that will, I think, and, and I hope, will potentially uplift an entire generation uh, of people. And so that's an opportunity for me.
Okay. Joshua, you, um, well, you start from a position of faith anyway, <laughs> but I note that um, at the Selma 50th anniversary, you connected the civil rights uh, movement, the revered civil rights movement, with President Obama's legacy. You saw the connection there. You spoke about it. So I'm wondering if you see that as his opportunity. Sure. <laughs> I, I am a person of faith, but uh, faith without works is dead, and I'd love to talk about some of the president's work um, and some concrete policy achievements that I, I think we've seen over the last um, eight years, uh, and then we can move to the, more of the cultural context after that. Uh, so some very important, very specific things. First, um, the African-American unemployment rate at the height of the Great Recession in March 2010 was 16.8%. Last month, it was 8.3%. Uh, so because of President Obama's intervention in the economy, and I was there at the beginning when he rode down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, twisting arms on Capitol Hill to make sure that we got the Stimulus Act passed, to make sure that um, he made the moves uh, on the auto industry that he did and so forth, uh, the black unemployment rate is, has been cut in half. Uh, thing one. Uh, uh, the, the, the second thing I would mention is the Affordable Care Act. Certainly much more um, could have been done there. I, I think um, a public option uh, would be ideal, was very much immersed in um, the negotiations with Congress over that. In fact, a little known fact, um, a black woman named Danielle Gray, graduate of Harvard Law School and the first um, African-American woman cabinet secretary was a person drafting a lot of uh, the language there. Even with the flaws in the Affordable Care Act, um, among non-seniors, the African-American uninsured rate has been cut in half since the beginning of the open enrollment period in 2013. That is a big deal for real-life individuals who now have health insurance because of President Obama. Let's talk about a few more things. Um, the president has, um, has permanently banned the use of solitary confinement for juvenile offenders. It's a huge deal. I used to work at a um, juvenile pre-release facility called the Watson House in Cambridge when I was at BU um, and have uh, and interacted with a number of juveniles who had to sit for weeks, if not months, in solitary confinement. That is not allowed anymore. It's a very, very important thing. And overall, not just with solitary confinement, um, but with uh, juvenile detention in general, they have 30% fewer juveniles in, in um, secure detention today than we did when President Obama started in 2008. He's begun to, um, to shift towards non-secure um, uh, interventions. That means community-based programming in a, in a very specific way. Um, let's talk about teen pregnancy. So in the Bush administration, we had um, ideological teen pregnancy approaches and interventions that didn't really focus on contraception prevention and evidence-based interventions. We also had, uh, for every thousand um, African-American uh, women, a uh, teen pregnancy rate of around 60.4%. Last year, that rate has dropped to, I think it's 34.9%. That's a big deal because the president has invested in evidence-based teen pregnancy interventions, uh, re uh, particularly related to contraception, but also <coughs> community-based programs. Um, as well. So I, I could go on and on. We, you could look at uh, the number of uh, black folks and particularly black women on the federal bench. Uh, 26 appointments to the federal bench uh, more than any other president. The, uh, Ten states have their first black woman judge and that, uh, that woman will be there for a lifetime because of President Obama. So you know, I, I think in general, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I should say, I think there is a little bit of a disconnect between the way that black folks that I interact with, um, in, uh, for example, in my, my second home, which is my barbershop, Mason's on <laughs> 11th and H Northeast in DC, um, and, and the perspective of President Obama in 
um, in more elite African-American circles, um, I think, uh, it, 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 I think uh, it, among everyday uh, African-Americans around the country, people in my own family, there's a sense that the president did everything he could with what he had and that some achievements were made. Um, but when we uh, uh, take a look at uh, his achievements from a more elite perspective, I think there's more disappointment. But hopefully that, um, I can go on to some other achievements, but hopefully that um, I'll let you circle back a little bit later okay, <laughs> with great, that. Yeah. I want to get to Kianga now. called elite. Oh, not you, ma'am. <laughs> 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 um, uh, Kianga, if I might ask you to answer the same question, and, you know, what did, what did the administration get right about using an opportunity to make policy? I mean, I think it, it's a very complicated question because um, I think that when you look at the level of uh, expectation and, and hope that existed at the uh, beginning of the uh, Obama administration where, you know, in some circles, at least in the, the, the news media, there was a discussion about whether or not we were entering into a post-racial period. Uh, there was a majority of African Americans who believed that the election of Obama was the achievement of King's dream. If you look at some of those things and the, the level of expectation that came with the Obama administration um, and where we are now, uh, ironically, um, it was during this administration that you have the eruption of Black Lives Matter, then it raises a, a serious question that I don't think is just posed by uh, quote unquote elites. I think that we can see that question ruminating in the complications that Hillary Clinton has right now in terms of mobilizing uh, black millennial voters. Uh, we have to grapple with the fact that 44% of black voters uh, between 18 and 30 uh, voted for Bernie Sanders. And when President Obama is saying that Hillary Clinton is the continuation of his administration, then what does that say about almost half of young black voters? And what is the disconnect uh, uh, there? And that is borne out um, in their own experiences in terms of uh, dealing with police violence and police abuse that is borne out in the enormous amount of student debt um, that black students in particular um, have incurred. And it's borne out in the complete uncertainty about what the future uh, holds in terms of, of um, having jobs that can actually respond uh, or, or get rid of that debt, um, the ability to have a secure future uh, in general. And so I think that there is a big question mark um, about the, I mean, there, there are policies that we, can, that we can pick out that say this may have had a, a positive impact for this group of people. But I think that when we're looking at the overall assessment um, in terms of where the expectations were, and I, I will say quickly, when people talk about expectations, it's all this, oh, you know, it's unrealistic to uh, hoist all this on, on the president. I think that we have to look at how those expectations were cultivated. Barack Obama was not black America's first political choice in 2007 and 2008. It was Hillary Clinton, but that there was a, a concerted effort uh, to try to transform his campaign into less of a political campaign and more of a social movement. I have never heard a, uh, a presidential campaign from a mainstream, in a mainstream uh, a presidential race you know, invoke the, the legacy of the abolitionist movement, invoke the legacy of uh, uh, workers in the 1930s who engaged in sit-down strikes, invoke the legacy of the Stonewall Rebellion um, in, in the 1960s, invoke the legacy of the Civil Rights Movement, and say that his campaign 
is an expression of that same kind of grassroots mobilization that can stand up to the status quo. That's where those expectations came from. And so to me, that is where a lot of the disappointment lies in the, the, dis the disconnect is between what candidate Obama ran on and what President Obama ultimately um, became. And I think that is the, 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 the complication and the history that we actually have to deal with. All right, so let's move to opportunities <laughs> missed. <laughs> we already um, did. <laughs> uh, somebody said that uh, nothing is more expensive, actually, than an opportunity uh, that has been missed. So what did it cost us, the mm -hmm. Americans, African Americans? We're talking about race and justice as the theme of this conference. So in terms of race and justice, Joshua, mm -hmm. what did it cost sure. uh, for these opportunities to be missed? Well, I, I think mm -hmm. we've been handle, handed an x-ray, and we can see all of the cancers that are in our mm -hmm. body as a, as a country right now, and that is a shocking, a destabilizing thing. I, I think, um, I, I agree that we have not achieved the, um, the level of hope and change, the, 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 the shift in public discourse, the um, the sense of unity as a country that um, President Obama articulated so beautifully in 2008. But I, I think we may be missing something really important about that. I believe, I believe personally, the reason that we haven't achieved it, and I think BLM and others have done such an amazing job pointing this out, uh, the primary obstacle to hope and change, as we now see, is white fragility and white supremacy. And that is on the table now that is out for everyone to see. We have the x-ray, we can see the Trump supporters. We can see uh, the, the Tea Party movement in 2010. We can see the uh, issues with race and bias and policing now. And until we, 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 we can't, can't do surgery without, it, without that x-ray. And so I, I, think the, I think it probably took the country too long and maybe even the president too long to be able to identify these things when a lot of folks in this room knew that already, right? Uh, but now, uh, again, because of the tremendous work of these young activists and others around the country who are pointing this out, keeping these issues at the forefront, now we can do something about it. Now, you know, we've talked about implicit bias in the presidential uh, debate. Uh, you know, we, we, we have, um, we, we ha are uh, having serious, rigorous conversations about not only shifts in policing more broadly, but the way that bias uh, affects other areas of American life. So it's on the table now. Um, uh, it's a long way of saying I, I think the, the, the missed opportunity is the fact that that took a while mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to, to get put on the table, even as other policy achievements um, um, came, came, uh, came to be. Um, but now it's there, and now we can do something about it. Um, Mary Frances Barry, you started off with a number of things you were very <laughs> focused on, but I just want you to target race and justice for the moment and say what do you think is the chief opportunities missed in, um, from this administration? Well, I think that, for example, the black unemployment rate that Joshua uh, mentioned was 16.9 or something, and I spent three years trying to get somebody in the White House mm -hmm. to target some programs toward black unemployment. And at one point, women's unemployment, black women, was way high, and people's houses were getting foreclosed, and there were stories about it in the paper, and people who had jobs and then got laid off from school systems, and all kinds of bad things happened. And I finally had to resort to getting a reporter to raise the question at a White House press conference. And when the reporter raised it, finally the other reporters started raising it, and then there were stories about it in the press. 
But what I'm saying is, it may be eight point whatever he said now. It's twice the rate of everybody else. Right. It always is since Clinton. Uh, but uh, for, for the whole of Obama's first term, you had this suffering going on in the country. And uh, the point I would make was that you could target some of those resources that I talked about in my earlier answer mm -hmm. toward trying to do something there. I know the stimulus was passed, but it wasn't big enough in the first place, and it wasn't targeted right. Uh, and there were problems with it. I only say on policy that we can criticize, if we must, him. And I said he did the best he could with what he had. Uh, for what they did when the Democrats had total control. They had a year, almost a year, when they could have passed anything they felt like passing. They had to vote. His problem is not just the white deplorables or the poor people who are white and the Trump people. His problem is the Democratic Party, in my opinion, has become too much the party of the managerial elite mm -hmm. and the professional classes and is not the party of the poor anymore. That's a major problem. Yes. Uh, and since it is not, people on the Hill, for example, have to worry about where they get campaign contributions and what people say and can they, and the reason why they did affordable care and kept the insurance industry in it mm -hmm. was because of that. And the woman who was lobbying for the insurance plans, she was the best lobbyist in Washington. She's now making money doing something else. She would laugh when people would criticize the insurance industry because she knew they were going to get a big cut out of this thing. Now what they're saying is give us more money because we're losing money out of it. But my uh, point is that it, that's just, it's not just Obama. The problem is not Obama deep, okay? Right. But the problem is the Democratic Party and what it does as a party that no longer represents those people who it wants to vote for it every time. They want us all to go out and vote, vote, vote. And what do they do? Scare yes. us. Trump is going to put you back in slavery. Uh, this is going to happen to you. Oh, you got to vote for us. Forget about the policy part and what we didn't do and what we're not going to do. And are we going to do it and how you hold us accountable? And then we don't hold them accountable because what we do then is go away and go to sleep till the next time they come back and say, vote for us, vote for <laughs> us, vote for us. People like us sitting in here, we'll all do all right, no matter who's president. I mean, we ain't going to starve. But I'm talking about the people farther down. That's mm -hmm. who I care about. And the opportunities that have been missed are the opportunities for somebody to rise up. You know, somebody like Bernie Sanders, you know, he wasn't my favorite guy, but at least... Uh, <laughs> At least, you know, he mm -hmm. talked the talk, you know, he doesn't walk the walk. But Obama is fine. He did great. And the fact that you compare him with Trump, <laughs> compare him with Trump, that's why his approval ratings are so high. People yes. saying, why his approval ratings so high? People love Obama. Well, black people love him. We pray for him every Sunday in church. But the other thing is that the, the Trump is so bad you know, when something is so bad, even bad looks good, whatever it is, you know? Uh, right. And that is big. I know you didn't ask me all that. But. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, so let me just pick up. So if it's, if it's uh, since, since this, this focus is really about President Obama and his administration, yes. and you've made the point that the party yes, what, what also had a part to play in that. Um, Shermichael earlier made the point that though the hope and change was very important in terms of cultural response of Americans in general, but certainly uh, black Americans, um, that there still 
didn't translate into policy that he could pinpoint. And Kiyanga, I wanted to come to you on this because a lot of the criticism for President Obama within the range of what he could do, all right, regarding policy, was that there was no emphasis on targeting policies for African Americans specifically. None. And yeah, I know you've been a chief critic about this. And so for many people, this is uh, well, paramount said, in opportunities missed. I mean, he said in 2012, in the midst of his um, second run for president, that uh, just to clarify, I am the president of the United States, not the president of black America, um, during this period in which there was disproportionate uh, suffering and impact of the economic crisis um, in black communities. And part of, again, and part of the reason why the shift, the, the tide turned for Obama among black voters uh, was the belief that, a, a belief that, you know, whether or not he made specific promises, um, you probably can't pinpoint. But the idea of, you know, change doesn't come from Washington, it comes through Washington, uh, yes we can, all of that, was, was the idea that um, there, his, the election of the president would uh, uh, result in um, particular attention being paid to the problems in black communities that, um, you know, were front page news when the, the economic crisis uh, was happening. And not only did that not happen, but I think it's important to point out how um, the president also, while not paying particular uh, attention to black communities policy-wise, was also preserving this space of blaming black communities for the problems that uh, existed. And, and what I mean by that is that at a time when the Occupy movement is exploding, when the entire Western world is talking about economic inequality, uh, uh, the, the, the problems with capitalism, the, the reckless behavior as Wall Street, as a direct, uh, having a direct implication with the economic crisis in 2008, what is President Obama talking about? Black men need to be uh, acting like fathers. Uh, black parents need to stop feeding their children cold fried chicken. Um, black parents need to turn off the TV and read to their children. Uh, uh, going to Chicago and bemoaning the lack of role models. All of, uh, of this, this kind of, of language that was taking the, the spotlight and the emphasis off of the structural systemic problems that everyone was talking about and redirecting that attention um, back into the, the behavior or morality uh, of black communities um, and basically uh, 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 preserving that, that space which was shrinking in effect and keeping it uh, uh, alive, which I think was very destructive. But is it fair to, um, when we know, Dean mm -hmm. Fung has just reminded us that the presidency, though writ large, is limited um, in the powers of what it may do. Was the expectation that he would target really uh, not one that, that should have happened, given everything, you, even given everything you've said. The expectation is if you go into black communities and talk about your uh, candidacy um, as a product of the civil rights movement, if you go into black communities and try to uh, uh, demonstrate your campaign as the trajectory of social movements that have been uh, uh, unfolding since the 19th century, then I think it's, it's unfair to then come back to those communities and say, well, where did all these expectations come from? Why do you 
you know, expect me to do particular things for black people. You think about it now. President Obama, who spent most of his administration until Black Lives Matter erupted, distancing himself uh, um, from talking about race and from dealing with uh, issues in the black community, then comes a month ago and says, well, if black people don't vote for Hillary Clinton, then that is a, a, a slander against my legacy. You forgot the bear summit. <laughs> yeah, yes, We're yes. We're also forgetting a number exactly. of other seminal moments. If, 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 uh, I want to get to Michael in. Because Sir Michael, and I'll come back to you, Sir Michael, your job is to really look at the political process and, mm -hmm. and, and direct and, and your clients as, as you may. So given that we understand that the presidency is limited, mm -hmm. Kang gets a very strong reaction that, okay, but still, you, you created that the I expectation. Agree with, I actually agree All right, with so then w w explain to me from your perspective <laughs> in terms of race and justice how those opportunities were missed and how he may have, even within his limitations, um, taken an opportunity to change that. Well, I mean, I guess to no surprise, I'm not the biggest fan of President Obama's. In 2012, I, I worked for Governor Romney and Speaker Ryan. I traveled all over the country with those two. They were my preference to be in the White House. Uh, but specifically as it pertains to the president and the statement that he made he's the president of all of America, yet during his presidency when gay Americans were attempting to get legalized gay marriage, his White House assisted with advocating for that. Um, Hispanics, his White House advocated for some type of comprehensive immigration. But these are specific policy initiatives that he targeted throughout his presidency. However, as it pertains to African Americans, for the most part, he didn't say much of anything as it pertains to race and justice. So no targeting of African Americans, not, in my though. Opinion, okay. Not at all. And, and I want to talk about two particular, two specific things: education and criminal justice reform. Now, when I'm on television, I, I'm on News One now at Roland Martin, a large African American audience, and typically I'm the only Republican. And we talk about mm -hmm. these issues weekly. And it baffles me, when you look at education, let's think about the Pell Grant. I went to Morehouse, a historically black college. Most of my friends went to historically black colleges. And unfortunately for me, I didn't rely on these things. But a lot of my friends did. You look at the Pell Grant, the rules were drastically changed under President Obama's administration. That, inf that impacted a lot of young African Americans. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Or you look at the uh, Parent PLUS loan. The rules for credit worthiness were significantly changed. Mm -hmm. So now you have poor African American mothers, most of them single, who can't send their kids to college who actually may want to go to school. Now you could say, well, they could apply to PWIs, predominantly white institutions. Most of these kids wouldn't qualify for those places. The beautiful thing about a historically black college is that it would give those kids an opportunity to excel. But if their parents can't sign a simple loan to at least get them in the door, they can't go. So then you have kids who are out on the streets. You see Chicago, you see Baltimore, you see other places. The president has done nothing. There was an article I was reading a couple months ago uh, where the president had a meeting with Congressional Black Caucus members. And it was about more funding for historically black caucuses, or black colleges, rather. And the president, for the most part, was extremely dismissive. A lot of the members stated that it was quite clear and apparent that the president was out of touch. This thing was, well, they should have higher graduation rates, or they should have this, or they should have that. And their fundamental premise was, okay, Mr. President, we agree, we get those things. But these colleges, these institutions, they serve a huge purpose to our community. I can remember in college where I had 
many of my friends who came from very destitute backgrounds, and some of them, first year or two in college, they didn't perform very well academically at all. Now, I'm sure if they were at another institution, they probably would have got booted out. But Morehouse being Morehouse kept those students there, worked with them until they were able to achieve. A couple months ago, I was on TV with Dr. Julia Malvo, who's the former president of Bennett College, and she was sharing a story with me during a commercial break about a young lady who was at Bennett who entered Bennett underperforming, could not afford to be there. Board said, you got to let her go. She can't, she doesn't have the money, we have to let her go. Dr. Julianne said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Well, she's not performing well academically. No, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to keep her here. We're going to work with her. This young lady is now an attorney. An attorney. Now, if the president has his way, we're going to continue to cut funding. You're going to continue to make it more difficult for the people who voted for you 90% supported you with all of the ills, in my opinion, of his administration, extremely loyal. You can work on comprehensive immigration. You can work on this gay marriage issue. But for the people who gave you majority of their vote, both times, and in my opinion, haven't received anything for it, if you ask me, you mean to tell me that we can't focus on making it easier for them to have access to a quality education? Well, let's talk about criminal, and I, if I have enough time, mm -hmm. let's talk about criminal justice reform. Now, the president, I believe, it was 600 individuals, I believe, he commuted. Uh, Lyndon Johnson. 774. Okay, there we go. I said <laughs> it So more than anyone, Lyndon Johnson, I believe, was over 200. Okay, kudos to the president. I'll, I'll give him that. It cost between eighteen dollars and $50,000 per prisoner per year, depending on the state. Federally, it cost between twenty dollars and $30,000 per year. Our prison system in this country is near capacity. We have the largest prison population in the world. The largest, which is absurd if you ask me. And I'm saying this as a Republican. It's absurd. 90% yeah. mm -hmm. of the people in prison, 90% are in there for nonviolent crimes, nonviolent offenses. 90%. We have mandatory minimums, which disproportionately impact African Americans and Hispanics. And the president hasn't focused on these issues. It's absurd to me that you have the first African-American president who doesn't focus on the issues that impacts a community that looks like him, that gave him a majority of the support, that are extremely foolishly loyal to him, if you ask me. And he ignored these issues. So if you ask me, the president has not done a very effective job. And those are two things that disproportionately impacts black people. And when I travel, I said, when I go to New Orleans, my grandmother's an educator. I talk to people from New Orleans. I see how these issues impact these communities. And that's just one example. That's just one example where the president has failed. All right, so Josh, yeah. um, because you are in the White House with this president, yeah. I want to put the frame the question this way, and that is, is, is our expectation, I take Kianga's point that he curated the expectation that more would be expected, but because he is the first African-American, are we treating him differently in the way that we would have treated another administration sure. to force a focus on race and justice? I, I think black yes. elites are. I don't think every, most everyday black people are. And I, think, um, and, and I mean that in a very specific way and, and, and not in a disparaging way, but I'll, I'll talk specifically about that. I want to address a couple points, that, uh, very important points that, that have been raised. Um, one, criminal justice reform. That it's, a, it's a fascinating perspective um, in terms of uh, where President Obama has been publicly and aggressively on, on that issue. The NAACP convention last mm -hmm. year, he gave a major speech 
pushing for criminal justice reform, then did a Vice um, mm -hmm. uh, special where he was the first president to tour a prison, mm -hmm. and has then went back to the Hill, and the White House has been on an all-out push to pass criminal justice reform. Who's stopping criminal justice reform? Chuck Grassley, Republican senator uh, from the Republican Party, and other Republicans who are not bringing criminal justice reform to the floor. Let's get specific. Let's talk about <laughs> specific policies and specific moments. Let's talk about the president addressing race. It's just, um, I would love for um, someone to study the, the apparent disconnect between all of the speeches on race that President Obama gives, many of which are reacted to very positively immediately afterwards, and then uh, you know, a couple weeks later, the same folks can say, why doesn't he ever talk about race? I want to go through a few of them because I, I've, I've been there for many of them. I staffed President Obama in 2007 when he was in Selma the first time and gave his Joshua Generation speech. And I was there with him on the 50th anniversary when he walked across the Emmon Pettus Bridge. By the way, in 2007, <coughs> right after that speech, he walked over to Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and grabbed his wheelchair and pushed him across uh, the bridge and spent time with him privately in, in ways that you know folks never uh, would, would, would never know. Um, I was there in Philadelphia when he gave his race speech there on the campaign. Uh, when right after Trayvon Martin was killed, he walked um, out to the, uh, to the Rose Garden and said, um, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. And then followed up um, after the, uh, the acquittal of that murderer and went down to the press briefing room and did not blame black men did not talk about personal responsibility, but looked specifically at systemic issues. Look at that speech. Let's keep going. I was there in Charleston um, when he stood seven feet above the coffin of Clemente Pickney and didn't just talk about, he could have, it could have been a funeral. It could have been a regular funeral address and a eulogy, but he, he spoke specifically to the history of black people in this country and why that man died. I was sitting right behind the family uh, when uh, the, the, the audience, the congregation, I would say, because it felt like a church service, rose to greet him when he started uh, singing Amazing Grace and his voice was choking. He didn't know if he could go on, and so they mixed their voices with his because they understood that he stood for and with them. Um, I can go on. No, the, 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 please, I can, don't. I, I, please don't go on. No, 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 because, but let, let me say, because with speech, every, I, I'm 25% here, so let me just give speech them a big Then let me, then, okay, so right. that's the public I'm, I'm gonna let everybody get in. 30 seconds, no, 30 seconds about the bureaucracy. You got 15, gosh. Okay, okay, 15 seconds. 15 seconds about the bureaucracy and public policy. You heard some of the achievements, but he also put in place the big names like Eric Holder, and we can talk about his achievements, the, uh, like our current Attorney General, we can talk about her achievements, and the names that you'll never know, people like Melody Barnes, the head of the Domestic Policy Council, who has dramatically expanded promised neighborhoods around the country in her tenure, anti-poverty interventions. Yeah, he has a tremendous amount that he could have done, should have done, uh, but there is a reason, and I don't think black folks are dumb, I think that when you poll most black Americans, and not just are they praying for him, but did he do as much as he could, the vast majority would say yes, and the vast majority of folks in elite circles would have questions about that. I trust my great-grandmother, Ola Mae Webb, um, to, to have a, a pretty good assessment of President Obama, and I think I'm she knows what she's talking about. So okay, I, 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 I just want to just frame it back. I know you yeah, two want to really respond to, would we have put the same pressure on another administration? No. Would it have been But a he different... deserved that pressure, he, okay. and he deserved even All more. Right. We just have to hold them accountable. No. All right, yeah. Shermichael yeah. and then Kianga. Yes. Really quickly, is, this is, sure. I hear this argument a lot, and it just drives me nuts. The president gave great speeches. Okay, no, kudos, no, wait, awesome. wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> kudos to the president. He's a good order. Kudos for that. That's not results. 
That, that, that's not a result. Republican and granted, and granted wait a minute. Now, I will agree with you as it pertains to Chuck, Senator Grassley. I have friends that work for the senator. I do not agree with the fact that he's holding up criminal justice reform. In my opinion, in my personal opinion, I would have preferenced the president to be more targeted versus having a robust plan, policy initiative. I would have wanted more targeted, specific issues. Okay, so so not all boats rise yeah, yeah, when I do wait, that. Absolutely okay, not. Right, so that's okay. not how, that's not how DC works, and you know this very well. Okay. So if you're going to talk about mandatory minimums, then you go to Congress <laughs> and you force Republicans to take an up or down vote on this issue, and then you go down from there. The president could have easily, easily like he did on on sentencing disparity. All right. I'm moving to Kianga. Okay. I'm letting okay. Kianga. So there will always be a reason why he didn't accomplish these things and that I pointed out. I find that so coincidental. I just want to say that I, I really want to push back on this notion of it's only quote unquote elite blacks who criticize um, the president. And you know, you can do any number of polls you want. Black people, I honestly believe, will not uh, criticize the president um, in polling because of the, the structural impediments and all that. So to me, you have to use different measures. And if you think that the people on the streets of Ferguson were the elite, then, you know, no, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can help you. Or the people on the streets <laughs> of, 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 of uh, Charlotte, mm -hmm. or the people who, ordinary black working class people who have been on the streets for two years because of the absolute lack of uh, change in the issues of police violence uh, and abuse. So when we're talking about justice uh, and race and missed opportunities, I believe we are living through one now, that the president does all number of, of things to um, you know, appeal to uh, uh, activists uh, and to <coughs> cultivate um, the idea that something is happening. You take the commission, the policing uh, 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 commission uh, that came out of the first wave of protests um, in, in, in Ferguson and then nationally in 2014. Well, it has been almost 19 months since the 58 recommendations of that report mm -hmm. came out in March of, of 2015. And another 1,300 people have been killed mm -hmm. by the police. And we can talk about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the constraints of federalism um, and the, the lengths to which the federal government can go and police, policing is local. And those aren't, those aren't uh, um, you know, you can't dismiss those. On the other hand, um, there is a, a problem with the, 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 the lack of accountability uh, with, with policing, the continued attempts to have an even-handed uh, approach to this, which of course the president probably has, uh, probably has to do. But these are the reasons, I think, why um, the movement has continued uh, to stay on the streets is because of that lack of responsiveness. And you can't just dismiss that as, you know, a couple of black professors have an issue with President Obama, but everybody else is, is great uh, uh, with President Obama. Okay. It makes no sense of the current political situation with the emergence of Black Lives Matter. It makes no sense in terms of black millennials' rejection mm -hmm. of Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Those things have to be accounted for and can't just be be dismissed as, you know, a couple of cranky professors who don't like what's happening. Uh, Mary Frances Berry, you have 30 seconds. We're going into questions, so I'll be looking seconds. for Hank. <laughs> yeah. Oh, You're going to get a chance to answer some questions from the audience, but I, if, but oh, your last say, comment, I'll, you get... I'll be fast. Yes. The speeches, which are wonderful, he's good at, and it builds up the persona that I talked about at first. 
as president. Part of that's a role a president who's good at that can do very effectively. And it comforts not just black people, but it's not radical and wild and makes white people and other people of color feel great. Okay, that's what the speeches are about. They're not about policy unless policy is implemented after that or mm -hmm. before. The second thing is that uh, what Obama has done about, part of the problem is we don't know enough history. There should be more history in policy making here at the Kennedy School and other places. There used to be more, maybe there'll be more now. Uh, because most people don't know, for example, that when you talk about policing, there have been so many police commissions and commissions to look into violence and the police, I even chaired some of them, uh, and made recommendations about what they should do. And usually we recommend the same things. Uh, and usually what happens is nothing except to give more money to the police or whatever. Uh, but if we knew something about the history of them before, that might help us. And the third thing is that Obama has not had the pressure put on him that other presidents have had. Mm -hmm. When people have tried, when some black folks have popped up, or some white women who are friends of mine in groups, mm -hmm. have popped up to try to get them to do something at the White House, they literally get cussed out. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the public loves us, all the Democrats love us, why don't you shut up? Your job is to go and implement, VJ says it a lot, uh, I don't want to tell you who VJ is, uh, that uh, go over there and take care of all of these problems. You know, stop, don't be bothering the president. And so groups, they know that we love Obama, mm -hmm. and so they haven't put the pressure. If you had a white president in the White House and the unemployment rate was 16.9% and all these other things, you would have more people complaining than complaining. We just want him to get through the eight years and go home mm -hmm. and be happy. Yes. Uh, and life can go on. I mean that. We right. do. If he can just do that, we'll be fine. All right. Questions? Over here. Oh, wait. We need a microphone. Thank you. Um, two, two things. I was struck that no one mentioned anything about foreign policy. Mm. We weren't asked. And, uh. you know, it, just to connect it to this, most of the people that the United States has killed, the hundreds of thousands, have been people of color. Mm -hmm. around the world. The second is the fact that this is maybe more of a comment, but if you uh, could uh, comment. Uh, uh. Please give me a question. <laughs> that no one has gone to prison. The Wall Street criminals, the war criminals, and the police. Good point. Two good Agreed. points. Two good right. points. Who Agreed. would like to respond to that? I would. Go ahead. Uh, first, <laughs> I'll respond to anything, as you noticed. Uh, first of all, yes, indeed, all these people. We weren't asked about foreign policy. One of the things I like about Obama, I don't like all those people getting killed, is his foreign policy has been to not send a whole bunch of troops someplace to fight and get killed or to get maimed, which is what they do now. They lose their limbs, come back as amputees. So I think that that is uh, good on the foreign policy side. As far as Wall Street, obviously, since capitalism is intact, you don't expect the Justice Department to go after those people and to put them in jail, because then Wall Street would be worried. Wall Street people, they don't care how much you find them. Mm -hmm. You can find them all you want to. They got enough money left after you find them. It's the going to jail that really bites. Yeah. <laughs> all the way over here. Hi, um, Mr. Duvois, this is to you, but anybody sure. can um, put in if they want. You have an intimate relationship with President Obama, and there has been talk today about how he presented himself as, an organi as a community organizer, and he, present and he campaigned 
as a social movement pusher, I guess. And yet we see um, Dr. Fong pointed out that there has been a lack of policies to support community organizing and community initiatives um, at the federal level. Um, can you speak on to why you sure. think there was a disconnect between um, President Obama's organizing experience and his lack of policies that support community organizing? Uh, sure, it's a great question. Um, a, a few things. Uh, one, I think one of the great failures of community organizing, as, um, as it were, um, in the Obama administration uh, was the, the lack of transitioning of all that goodwill and all those networks around the country and all of that enthusiasm after the 2008 election into a movement in 2009 and 2010, a movement that could have helped to sell health care reform, um, uh, maybe even pass a public option, and so forth. I, the president, has, I think, has mentioned that, uh, but I certainly believe that there was a significant gap there, and much more could have been done, more that would have kept Democrats in office and different um, you know, congressional districts around the country. Um, and so I, I definitely think that more could have been done from a DNC perspective, uh, from uh, leadership across government um, and all the, the mechanisms of the Democratic Party there. Um, I, I would say there, there are a few um, bright spots in terms of community organizing, both practical um, and, uh, and more relational. Uh, one, on the practical side, I mentioned promised neighborhoods, but the president sort of regularly engages with community organizing groups um, and uh, brings them into conversation about his uh, policy initiatives. Um, I was at the White House recently in the same room as, you know, C.T. Vivian and DeRay and Brittany, who you, who you heard from last night. And these folks are, he's able to connect across generations um, and provoke a conversation about uh, where uh, we were with organizing in the civil rights movement, where we are now. Um, and the, but the final thing I, I would say is that um, this, I don't think this is an achievement of, of the president's per se, but of the moment that we're in. I think BLM is the best thing that happened in this country since the civil rights movement. And that was in response to um, police violence and to the, the issues that these young activists saw in communities around the country. I don't think the, um, the president certainly had, had, did not create the Black Lives Matter movement, but I think he has uh, learned to, or actually pretty quickly after Ferguson, learned to be in conversation. There are a lot of Black Lives Matter movement leaders, some who are not in conversation, some who would say they do have a robust and ongoing conversation with the White House <coughs> over policy initiatives. And so I think that in and of itself is a unique thing that um, you had some folks that you heard from yesterday, you, had, uh, you have other people around the country who will say, I am in a very real dialogue with the White House between community organizing and activists um, and, and, uh, and the, the federal government. Am I getting everything I'm asking for? No, but the conversation is being taken seriously. Right here, sir. Um, you mentioned that there was a lack of specific targeting um, in terms of the African-American community. Um, but Obama's mobilization machines in terms of voting has been marked as revolutionary by some in its ability to get young voters, particularly the 18 to 24s, to the polls. So my question is, why was that mobilization machine not present in the implementation of policy? Why was that machine, or could it have been used to actually encourage um, popular participation in policy implementation? 
Well, I mean, I, I think that the president, brilliant on a political st strategy, and I've worked with three presidential candidates, all Republicans, of course, and the RNC, I still work with them today, and trust me, we wish we could implement what President Obama did in, in both terms as far as his ability to mobilize uh, young voters. I, I do think that if that same strategy was utilized as far as policy initiatives that he supported, he could have put a lot of pressure on members of Congress, even Republicans, to have to answer to some of these questions versus tabling an option, you have no choice but to vote for it. If they're getting thousands of calls a day, trust me, I've seen this on the other side. I've helped make some of these things happen. If you're getting thousands of calls a day, oh, trust me, they're going to say, you know what, we can't table this. Let's just bring it up for an up or down vote. And he could have utilized that. I think it's also easier to promise things as a candidate and to get oh, yeah, votes well. out mobilized that way than it is to either pass policy, which is, you know, there the first year or so um, when uh, Obama had a supermajority um, in Congress, if you can't get anything passed then, it speaks to the, the, the complication um, of doing so. It also speaks to political will. Um, and so I think that, that that is part of the problem. So when people talk about all of the uh, discussion about race and, and issues of criminal justice now um, and try to sort of attribute that solely to the present presence of the uh, the president that you know the black president has helped bring these issues of race and inequality into um, everyday people's living room I think that they um, what's missing there is is how it's the the movement has actually forced these issues into the open in an unprecedented uh, uh, in an unprecedented way and so if we look at um, you know, the, the different moments when this happened around uh, the execution of Troy Davis in 2011 when hundreds of black students marched around Washington, D.C., hoping to get the president to uh, at least make a statement. No one was naive enough to believe that he would intervene directly into Georgia, but to at least make a statement that these were the reasons why we voted uh, to have a black president in the White House um, in the first place, and, and nothing happens with that. He sends a press person out the next day to say that this is a state's rights issue. Even with Trayvon Martin, it took the mobilization of people for 45 days to try to get Zimmerman arrested. That is what brought that issue into uh, everyday people's uh, uh, living room. And so the president has been reactive uh, to these things, which speaks to probably his intelligence you know, that you can't ignore these central issues uh, uh, to uh, a black constituency, um, but has not led it on them. For the, some of the reasons that I think Dr. Barry mentioned, which have to do with the constraints of the Democratic Party, that I'm not sure are completely interested in having a mobilized, engaged uh, uh, electorate um, outside of the, the four-year voting cycle and the, 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 the midterm elections. Um, I see you over there, but I'm going to go here and then come back to you. Yes, sir, back in the back. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, if I tell you that I'm a very dangerous driver, then you go for a ride with me and we drive really fast, you're not going to think, oh, he's driving so fast, you're going to think it's just part of my being a dangerous driver. Now, we were told in implicit and I would say very explicit ways from the inception of President Obama's candidacy that he's very different. He's not like us. He's, he's a very different person. So how much of the things he has done as president that were different and were outstanding or were outliers 
were overshadowed by what I would call the set of negative expectations that were, that were created, this negative framework that was built around him from the very beginning. In other words, how much of what he has been able to achieve has been lost, especially on whether it's young African-American voters or, or other communities of color, how much of what he's done has been lost in the fact that we were told from the beginning he's going to be really different and for some people really scary. And so when he does things that might be different or scary, they're not seen that way because he's just living up to, like I said, negative expectations. hope that makes sense. I'm sorry. But. No, I didn't understand. I, sure. I mean, I would, I would say from what I understand of your question is that um, people make those determinations based on uh, what changes in their lives. I don't think that people just only form their political opinions um, based on the news media. Uh, there is some combination that has an impact, but it's also based on your own experience. And so if you look at, at Chicago, for example, the, the president and you know, adopted um, hometown, uh, the situation for black millennials in Chicago is, is a disaster. And so there's no amount of uh, political spin um, that can transform uh, that reality. And so that, I think, is what um, many ordinary people, whether it's recorded in the polls or not, um, are reacting to, is what has actually changed in our day-to-day -day lives. We still have 40% of black children live in poverty. 47% of black men 20 to 24 in Chicago are unemployed and out of school. And so not all of this can be laid at the uh, the doorstep of, of President Obama, obviously, but there, when, when you are the, 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 the leader of the free world, when you can direct drone strikes very precisely in Yemen and Pakistan, then it raises the expectation of what you should be able to do um, in this country. Yeah. Um, and, and we can't just you know, talk about all the complications and the political paralysis because we've seen the American government move very quickly um, on things that it is determined to, to, to push through and very sclerotically um, on other issues, particularly uh, uh, social issues that have to do with poverty and inequality. I think people did carry into this administration a set of expectations, negative viewpoints, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and when those are borne out, I think they should be, um, they should be pointed out. But I think it's also really important to, to, to look at even marginal progress, but progress that's important mm -hmm. and that impacts people's lives. 2015. Uh, was uh, the, the uh, largest decline in the poverty rate for African Americans since 1999, in that tremendous year in 1999, dropped 2.1%. Among black children, dropped 4.2%. That's uh, 700,000 overall, 400,000 black children that are above the poverty line right now. That's important. It's not everything. It's not even close to everything, but that is important. Um, and, and, and some of that can be traced back to very specific bureaucratic boring interventions that um, progressives that President Obama put in place across government um, have, have moved forward on. And so I, I think there's this broad, there, there was this kind of broad expectation that things will get better. Things will get better. And not everything got better. In fact, things in some ways have gotten more acutely, uh, uh, more apparently uh, worse, or at least we, we can see the, the problems now. And I agree, it's not that President Obama um, didn't uh, put those problems out on the table himself. But what, it, what the, I think the, the, ca the causal chain here was that uh, a lot of white Americans reacted to the black president in office, and then African Americans, especially young activists, mobilized to respond to that reaction 
Um, the president had a different had, had a role, certainly in provoking the reaction in the first place. He also had a has had a uh, ongoing role in responding to it. But it, it's the environment that is created now has the the issues um, at, at the forefront, and I think that's an important thing. Um, the question is, where do we go from here? What 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 do we what do we do now that these issues are are on the table? And that's where accountability and holding feet to the fire comes in. Um, this gentleman all the way on the back wall, and then afterwards here, and then here. Quick question. What specific race-related pieces of legislation would you like to have seen passed in the past in the current administration, past eight years, and how likely do you think those would have been passed? Chair Michael? <laughs> you know, th that's a hard question, a uh, considering... Question. No, no, no. It's, I didn't say it was a good, wasn't a good question. It's <laughs> a hard question for the simple fact that I'm not sure how much the president would be able to get accomplished uh, with the partisanship in Congress today. Um, I, I think that I was t texting a friend who works in the White House, actually, for Valerie, Valerie Jarrett before we came to stage, and he was giving me some pointers, if you will. He said, make sure you boost the president. And I said, I'll try my best, LOL. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and so at, at any rate, I would have, as I said, I would have wanted to see the president focus a lot more on education, specifically as it pertains to historically black colleges. Um, I, I think his focus on criminal justice reform should have been more targeted versus having one big policy initiative. Um, but again, under, under this Congress, with, with the level of partisanship that we see today, I'm not even sure if those things would have even passed. And I'm saying this as a Republican. I, I'm not even sure. Mary Francis. Um, I think it's an excellent question, but it's the wrong question, your question. Uh, what specific legislation would I like to have seen passed that would have affected positively the black folks I'm talking about? who were left out and don't, didn't have jobs and the unemployment rate and all of that. Mm -hmm. If you ask that question, for a long time, I've sort of thought with some other people that what you need to do is propose a piece of legislation that targets resources to geographic areas where the highest poverty rates are, and therefore you would get the black folks who are in the, the area I'm talking about. And by the way, Josh, when you look at declines in poverty rate, you have to look at where it started from. Mm -hmm. Like how That's high right. did it go up way back even before 1999. But anyway, um, so now I hear that there's a proposal from the Congressional Black Caucus that Hillary Clinton talks about in her campaign. Is that the actually, James Clyburn? Actually try to do that, yeah, Jim Clyburn's yeah, thing. Right. But for, you could have proposed that the first year that they were there, you wouldn't have had to say race. So you didn't get into all these problems about, is it for black folks? And I want to stay away from black folks. <laughs> Just say the areas where those rates existed. And there are lots of legislation that you can draft that will have look at where the people are and what the data are on those groups. And you can target them without saying, I'm here today to talk about black folks. And the other, well, that's all I'll say now. I won't take it. Well, bit. and even, even to the professor's point, there are a lot of poor whites that who mostly vote Republican who would benefit from, from the legislation from the that you're talking about. From the James Clyburn bill. Absolutely. Which yeah. I, I can't uh, describe uh, very specifically, but has some formulas which take many resources to the but highest levels of poverty. ask yourself why they didn't poverty. do that the first year they got that. here, now the second year, when the poverty rate when black unemployment was 16.9%. Okay. Why in the last year 
and for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself, I'm yeah, not going to answer the question, I'll, I'll, I'll why are they that. talking about the, that? Um, what that's happened a really important question. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the first thing they did was a knockdown, drag out fight over the stimulus, where Republicans wanted it, well, they didn't want it at all, and then they wanted yeah, 600 yeah. billion, 700 billion, and he fought for as much as he could. That was the first thing. It took a whole lot of energy. I wish it was the case that you could just pass whatever you want, but you couldn't. And you can look at the legislative record to show that. The second thing he decided, um, I'm going to move on to health care. I'm going to do. The, I'm going to get the best mm -hmm. possible health care bill that I can do. By the time that's over, we are at 2010, and then the political disaster of part of the Democrats and the president's making that political disaster by not selling the health care bill, mobilizing constituencies. This was not an infinite period of time. In fact, it was a very relatively narrow, narrow period of time that started with the economic recovery and moved to health care, and then we're at, uh, we're, we are at the midterm election in 2010. Could he have made different decisions? Could he have put up uh, uh, comprehensive immigration reform? Could he have done an anti-poverty strategy? Yes, but we also had a hemorrhaging economy that was on the verge of the next Great um, Depression. And so it, you, one can critique the decisions that he made, but I think it's important to not think that just that it would have been, one, an easy, easy legislative fight, because no one would say that even the stimulus or the ACA that we have was easy. It was a very difficult legislative fight. I know fight. that. That's um, not the and point. Then it, and and <laughs> it was also that's not, not an, the point, an Joshua. infinite amount of time. Joshua, that's not the point. The point <laughs> is not that we should have had stimulus. Everybody knows we knew that. Everybody knows it was a recession. The point is that when you have control of the legislature and you have an overwhelming majority and you can do right. what you want because you have an overwhelming majority, you make choices about the things to do. And among that grab bag of things that you make choices about, if there's something that's absolutely essential to your 90% electorate that voted for you and loves you, Maybe you could like take a look at it or at least mention it or discuss it or see if somebody else might agree with you. That's all I'm saying. Yep. All right, right here. Hi, I'm Cordina Hill. One of the issues that I really have been concerned about, quite frankly, is the devastating effect that foreclosures mm -hmm. had on the black community. Oh, yeah. And it, affected every, it affects everything else. Displacement right now in many cities with the coupled with gentrification, you have many black families having forced out of their traditional neighborhoods, forced out of the community. It affects educational achievement. It's linked to just about every issue you can think about, health and mental health status. Uh, and one of the things I'm really curious about, and, and of course the banks have been able to strengthen their position. And this is in the context of growing wealth and income inequality. And so I want to know from you, what do you see as opportunities that could have been taken care of? Because we talk about health care, but housing is just a central shelter. It's just an essential issue. And what are some opportunities that could have been taken care of that could be addressed or could be addressed now in terms of dealing with that issue? Because I still think we haven't dealt with that issue. Uh, in terms of a policy? I think it's a great critique. I, I think, um, one, just the overall critique of, of lack of accountability for Wall Street is something that I would agree with. Um, that I think people should have gone to jail, period. Um, and, and I think the Department of Housing and Urban Development has, has done important things, particularly on the rental side and transitioning folks out of, um, out of uh, substandard public housing and moving into um, to, to more quality housing and so forth. But uh, I, I think, uh, and where, where possible, uh, they did everything that they could between HUD and Treasury, um, the most urgent foreclosure cases. But I, I don't think there was a uh, robust enough effort, um, I shouldn't say effort, I don't think there was a robust enough uh, programmatic and, and policy um, approach to to, um, to addressing foreclosures. Um, 244,000 um, African Americans lost their homes 
um, as a result of the um, in the the fallout of the the recession um, in 2008. And so I think that the issues of debt forgiveness, um, once it was discovered that many of the um, loans that had been made to uh, African American uh, African Americans, subprime loans that uh, were often uh, pushed in predatory uh, and fraudulent ways, um, that there should have been some kind of uh, debt forgiveness um, as a result of that. But these things, in, in some ways, when we just talk about the Obama or the Obama administration, uh, really tries to narrowly fixate on what this or that individual could do when we are talking about huge systemic um, issues. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, when Goldman Sachs is running the Treasury Department, um, <laughs> it's very unlikely that Goldman, people with Goldman Sachs in the financing industry are going to be put in jail. Um, and it's the same thing with the influence of the real estate industry um, and HUD and, and all of the, the rules and laws and regulations that are twisted in such a way as to not be as beneficial as they could to ordinary citizens um, but in fact are beneficial uh, uh, to business interests. This is not something that is peculiar, obviously, uh, to the Obama administration, but in some mm -hmm. ways shows the, the, the continuity with Obama uh, in previous administrations, as much as people may want to talk about uh, uh, how different this administration was. I think with the, the, the housing crisis in particular, we see a vast amount of, of, of continuity and just how typical um, this administration uh, reacted in terms of defending and deflecting for uh, uh, the financing sector, uh, for the real estate industry, and even for the, the, the banks themselves that were, were shown to have engaged in duplicitous practices that resulted in black people uh, taking these fraudulent loans. Again, fines. You know, you get some fines uh, uh, for the banks. No one is seriously punished. Um, and the, the, the process begins to replicate itself uh, in other ways. So, you know, Wells Fargo, uh, which was implicated in Baltimore uh, for pushing quote unquote ghetto loans, um, you know, now Wells Fargo has new issues. Uh, and it's because none of these people are ever punished. Uh, and, and they're not actually forced to account um, for their uh, uh, fraudulent, sometimes illegal, uh, duplicitous practices um, in the first place. And so in that respect, the, the, the Obama administration um, sort of fell in line with how uh, most of these administrations operate. And, and I, I think I think that's that's right, particularly in the in the first term, especially the first part of the first term where it was most acute. I do think it's important to at least mention the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the partnership between Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama. Without the president, uh, that bureau would not be in place, and we would not know about Wells Fargo's current issues if it was not for the CFPB and other very aggressive interventions that they've undertaken over the last two and a half years. So again. Um, that I, I don't think that is um, as important or as significant as some of the interventions on behalf of poor folks that probably should have taken place um, in 2009. But the CFPB is an important and substantial, so substantial that a federal judge just um, uh, uh, ruled that um, uh, it, it has too much authority, um, and, and now there's conversations about rolling it back, and it's mm -hmm. been under attack from Republicans since its creation. That is a very real advocate on behalf of consumers that is doing real things like holding Wells Fargo accountable even now with their most recent issues. Has anybody gone to jail? Uh, yeah. Hopefully they will. They, they, I know they're trying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, right here, this woman right here. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, that's the next great issue, and and I my I, my hope is that we that the conversation on criminal justice reform and police abuses um, uh, continues, becomes robust, and reaches important conclusions. But at the same time, we talk about black wealth, the black uh, 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 b being able to pay teachers more, to focus on retirement, focus on home ownership. I think that's being missed in the conversation right now. Um, for people who are listening to the conversation, the question was about black recovery because that was not on mic. Yes, right here. <laughs> Right here. No, the, didn't you have your hand? Oh, I thought you did. Okay, right here. Okay, okay. I didn't know if you were pointing. No. Right. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jess. Um, so my frame of reference is I'm a bilingual school psychologist. I've worked in Boston public schools, and I'm now in a large urban district in Massachusetts, where our students are primarily undocumented immigrants. Um, so you could say I'm passionate about education policy and would like to be more involved. And so I guess my question for you all is: Do you feel like President Obama replacing No Child Left Behind with Every Student Succeeds Act is an opportunity. Was that him taking an opportunity or not? Mayor Francis Berry? Oh, why did you have to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> I think that No Child Left Behind, which some people where I was speaking about it, some teachers got up and they called it Kiss My Behind, is what they called it. Uh, of course, was denounced by everybody, you know, everywhere and it stole Marion and Wright Edelman's trademark from the Children's Defense Fund, we mm -hmm. all know that. But I think that the Student Succeeds Act seems to have, I think he, he probably believes, and his education policy people believe that they were making some progress by passing um, the Student Succeeds Act. But I think the mere, the mere title of the act, my students tell me in my policy seminar, tells you right away that it's not real. Because first of all, not every student is going to succeed. <laughs> and every student isn't going to succeed by what happens in school. There still seems to be this uh, belief, which is not shared by education policy people, not in the university where I teach, or any of the other mm -hmm. ones, or even this one, <laughs> that in fact the only thing you need to worry about for kids in school is what happens in school. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. You need to worry about all the structural issues that you were talking about, all of the socioeconomic issues. But this act starts from the premise that if every student doesn't succeed, it's because, you know, something that didn't happen, you know, at school. And so I think that things should, I also don't like the provisions of it that give opportunities to use public money to go to places where I don't think it should go. Uh, because there are no um, uh, studies that show that that pays off. We have had for the last, since Bush, the, the first Bush, well, we have had a succession of education policies put into place without any kind of fundamental research support mm -hmm. by scholars who work on these matters to say that we should do whatever it is. And instead of doing, as one of my kids told me in my undergraduate seminar, why don't they do for poor kids what they did, my parents did for me? You know, he went to a fancy prep school and all the other stuff. If they really want to help them, why do they keep doing all these things and putting all these labels on them as if going to school and what happens to them in school without giving them the opportunity that I even had in school? <laughs> is going to be enough for them. And I said, well, it's largely a matter of money. That's one thing. And because we wish that something would happen. 
So starting with the title of it, starting with disconnecting, Al Shanker was right about something, and I used to fight with him all the time, but he was right. I have to say now that he's dead. Uh, what he said, Al used to say to me, the reason why we don't want a Department of Education is because education is connected to health and everything else, and it should stay in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And I helped Jimmy Carter get it out of the Department of uh, Health, Education, and Welfare. But he was right. And so the more we do these things and disconnect it from the idea of what kind of work do people have with their parents, what kind of environment do they live in, what's going on in the communities, and what additional resources you need in the schools to take care of the kids you have, not every student is going to succeed. That's Al Shanker, former head of the um, teachers' union. Yes, sir. Yeah. With the events that took place with Trevon uh, Martin and uh, in Ferguson and other places, has Obama done anything in the field of executive action in scaling back the material given by the Department of Defense to police departments in order to cut down on what's going on. Answer that. You know he has. He did, and then he didn't. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you want to continue, but the, the answer is 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 yes. He he has um, made uh, both funding available and threats to um, withdraw and pull back funding on the militarization side, and funding available on implicit bias training, um, incentives for local police departments, um, as much as is possible. I shouldn't say as much. I don't know if it's as much, but he, he has done something, um, uh, and the Department of Justice has done something when it comes to federal incentives for local police departments. Um, I think um, there's, we need to have a much more robust conversation about how the president, but in combination with local communities, can hold local police departments accountable when he does not have ultimate authority over them when he doesn't have ultimate authority over what happens in the Boston Police Department and so forth. Now, he's, in, he's initiated a bunch of very rigorous investigations, too, that have, con I mean, we see one almost every other week uh, where they're sending uh, justice officials, our black attorney generals are sending uh, progressive justice officials into local communities and detailing uh, the, the issues uh, with police departments um, in, in these communities. Um, and, and so I think that is another tool, another mechanism. The, the question is, can the president do more to use federal authority, federal incentives to uh, impact uh, local police. I'm sure there are some, uh, some additional things that he can do, but it, it is, uh, there, there are important local components to take into account as well. And this is, a, lastly I'll say, this is another moment where sort of rhetoric meets action. Um, a lot of folks wanted him to go to Dallas and not talk about policing because of the tragedy that, that, that happened there. He went to Dallas. He, he addressed the tragedy. He memorialized those officers, but he also talked about policing. And so it's one of those things where when he does something it's, uh, that is unexpected, folks don't say, oh, my goodness, he could have done this. But in fact, he did something much more robust than anyone expected and is, and is seeking to implement things that are robust. But when he doesn't do something, I think that's what is mostly focused on. Yeah. That, and I think the, the, the reasons for that is because of the uh, continued issues with not just police um, violence and abuse, but the lack of accountability um, for that, which I think was, was um, crystallized for many people um, in the movement, particularly with uh, the way that the uh, death of Freddie Gray was, was handled mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the coroner in um, Baltimore can say that Freddie Gray's death was a homicide, and yet 
all of the officers who were um, involved with him, uh, not a single one of them will be held to account. And so this is two years later. This is countless meetings uh, in the White House. This is uh, a commission. This is uh, several reports and investigations later. And still, the police officer who killed Mike Brown uh, uh, is, is not indicted. The police officer uh, who choked Eric Garner to death is not indicted. Uh, the police officer who killed Walter Scott in South Carolina, uh, who had been held without bail, was then given bail because the judge said he felt bad uh, that this officer had been uh, out removed from his family um, for so long. And so for this is part of the, the, the frustration, um, I think, is that we can have lots of reports that narrate uh, the experiences of uh, people who are victimized by the police and that quite uh, accurately document um, the uh, uh, illegal practices uh, of, of police in um, any given city. And yet nothing appears to happen that actually has an impact on how police interact uh, with black and brown uh, communities um, in, this, in this country. And the last thing I'll say is that in the heat of uh, a social movement, um, President Obama uh, uh, signed legislation um, to restrict the amount of military hardware uh, that goes to local police departments. But then in the aftermath of Dallas, uh, said that he would uh, look back into that um, and see about uh, uh, allowing police departments once again uh, to receive uh, this kind of military hardware. And so this also contributes uh, to the idea that there's a whole lot of talking and not a lot of action happening. And so we can go through all of the, the, the difficulties and complications of the federal bureaucracy interfacing uh, uh, on a local level. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, when, when nothing happens to actually uh, impede the ability of police to treat black people as second-class citizens in this country, um, then the, the, the frustration uh, uh, and anger, really, that exists and is demonstrated every time there is another uh, police killing in, a, in a, a city in this country will continue to be on display. If I, can, can I make a okay, okay. really, I'm sorry, really quickly. <laughs> well, I think the president could have certainly have pulled federal funding. Every state receives a couple billion dollars of federal funding that pertains to police departments. I think that funding could have, could have been indeed pulled. I, I think the militarization of, of police departments across the country should indeed be a concern to a lot of people. And, and as a conservative, I'm all for limited government, small government, and, and it bothers me significantly that there is a government entity that has this much power. I mean, theoretically, let's say, you know, someone were to take over the government, for example. You have a military that can outpower the people. That, that is, the, and that's antithetical to conservatism. And it's, it's, I've never, I found it extremely perplexing that Republicans have been relatively silent on this. And so you have a lot of police associations that it's will say. It's racism. It's not perplexing. It's racism. Well, you'll have a lot, well, I don't want to go that far, but you, you'll have a lot of, you have a lot of police associations that will say, well, we're, we're normally outnumbered, so it's a necessity that we have If it were these happening types. to white people, the Republicans would be all over this. It's happening to black people, and they don't care. So to, to finish my point, and I'm, I don't want to get into that. I just want to finish my point. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of police associations that will say we're outnumbered, so we need these weapons. But statistically, if you look at the numbers, 
that's it's not happening every day where folks are walking down the street with M16s or rocket launchers and they're shooting up police. That, that's it's a rare occurrence. So that argument within itself doesn't hold a, a lot of water if you if you are to ask me. So again, I, I think that's a it's a threat uh, to our civil liberties. I think it's something that conservatives should definitely be at the forefront of. They're not. You could say it's because of racial biases, and there are a lot of other variables, I'm sure, that uh, have something to do with it. But for me personally, as a conservative, I think that's something that drastically concerns me. And I have to say that I am not very proud that my party hasn't taken the right stance on that issue. Just real quick, Walter Scott was murdered in cold blood. There's no question about that in my mind whatsoever. Um, Walter Scott, the, the Walter Scott's uh, killer was also out on bail. But the space in between, particularly um, uh, as, as we rigorously look at this issue, demands specificity. And what do, is the president's role in a bail decision? What is the president's role, even if he agrees that he should not be, have bail, what is, what is the federal, just not even the president, what is the federal role in that? That is an issue of racism. I agree with you completely. I don't. I don't think, and I, or anyone that has that uh, that connects the decisions that are made by local prosecutors in local courts uh, to race and to bias in local communities. I think that that is an accurate connection. The question is, how can you then impact that? There are some ways. There are some levers of federal funding. There are some levers of training. But I think those ways are sometimes. With, with specificity and objectivity, more limited than, than we would like. And, and maybe that's something that needs to be changed. But, but I think it, 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 we are required to ask the question, what is our black president's role in these, in these decisions? And that, I'm leaving it there. We have to leave it there. That's race and justice uh, in the age of Obama. This has been opportunity and opportunities missed. And my guests are Mary Frances Berry, Joshua Dubois, Kianga Yamada Taylor, and Shermichael Singleton. Please thank you.